pray together. You know, as we're singing that song, probably perhaps a song that is new to many of us, just thinking about the words of it, my thoughts were immediately drawn to the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 3. And as we go to prayer, I invite you just to, as you remain standing, as you're able to bow your head, to close your eyes, and make this declaration of Paul's your own. When he says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and yet count them but rubbish, so that I may, be, may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, and that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Father, I believe that each one of us here this morning who knows you, Father, whether this has been a week of walking close by your side or it's been a week where we've wandered off the path, Father, whether you seem near to us today or far, Lord, I believe anyone this morning who truly has repented of their sins and trusted Jesus Christ, Lord, deep down this is the cry of our heart, that I may know him, that we may know Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ, that we might all our days walk faithfully with Jesus Christ. Father, at the same time, even as we've read, as we've sung, as we've been reminded all, already this morning, none of us is able to do any of that on our own. We need the work of Christ to, to cleanse and to transform us. We need the indwelling power and presence of your Holy Spirit to convict us and teach us and correct us and guide us. Father, we need the company of the saints, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, just as there's a chain that takes a Bible from, from one point of the globe to another, Father, there is a chain of family, brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, here we call it Maranatha, the local church. Father, we need each other to keep us focused, inspired, corrected, enthusiastic, desirous of following Jesus with all our heart. Father, that's why we're here today to sing his praise. We're here today to study your word. In it all, we're here to, to glorify and magnify the name of Jesus Christ. Father, but this isn't the only place we're doing that today. All over the city, all around the world, there are gatherings just like this one. Father, where people are seeking to do the same. This morning, I'm thinking, Lord, of the church family just again up the street from us, not far from here, First Church of the Nazarene. Father, as they gather together in the name of Jesus Christ, as they seek to glorify you and study your word, Father, I pray your spirit would move in a powerful way, bringing the hope and the comfort and the healing and the, the joy that they need, even as we invite you to do the same here among us. And Father, now we invite, as always, your Holy Spirit, who is already here, already dwelling within those of us who know Jesus. To be the one, Lord, not me, but that he would be the one who guides us in truth, who guards us from error, who delivers us from distraction and helps us to see Jesus. Father, may we see the Lord Jesus clearly this morning as we go to your word. May we see the Lord Jesus only this morning as we go to your word. And when we leave in a little while, as always, Father, we desire that it be rejoicing, not because we came to church and all our problems got solved, but because we gathered in the name of Jesus and heard his voice and felt his touch praised his name. Lord, it is the name of Jesus in which we gather. It's the name of Jesus that we give our praise, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray and ask all these things as all of God's people said together like they mean it. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And while most of you are taking your seats, some of you may scatter for children's church. So if we've got boys and girls today who want to be part of that action, now's the time 
young people to go. And as they're heading out, I want to invite you in to God's Word with me this morning. Once again, as we continue, we are now in the final book of our summer sermon series surveying a a handful of the minor prophets. We are once again this morning in the Old Testament book, the last book of the Old Testament, the book of the minor prophet Malachi. I want you to make your way to Malachi chapter 1. Last Sunday, we, we were introduced to Malachi. We looked at the first five verses by way of introduction, the first prophetic message that God gave through this particular servant. This morning, we're going to look at the second message God gave through him that begins right where we left off, Malachi 1 verse 6. This is actually the longest of the prophetic messages, so it's a fairly healthy reading. We're going to begin with this morning, but I want you to meet me there because we're going to start there. And this morning, I will be reading Malachi 1, 6 through chapter 2 verse 9 from the Hawaiian Pigeon Bible. (laughs) No way, but it'd be fun to see just the same. We are going to read God's Word, hopefully in language we can all understand, and and hopefully not only hear and understand, but take to heart as God uses it as He desires to among us. Malachi 1, beginning in verse 6, reading through chapter 2, verse 9, this is what the Word of God says. This is the Lord speaking. It says, a son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you, the priests, say, how have we despised your name? God replies, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but but you say, how have we defiled you? God answers, in that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. For when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? When you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now, will you not entreat God's favor, that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it, in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, the food is be to, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring what was taken by robbery and what's lame or sick. So you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. And now this commandment is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you. I will curse your blessings, and indeed I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring. I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence, so he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and 
Men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he's the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. Now, many of us, I would have to imagine, know of churches and other ministries, Christian ministries, that somewhere along the way, somewhere down through the years, lost their focus on the central message that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for our sins and rose from the dead so that anyone and everyone who repents and trusts him will be saved. Ministries that have lost the essential gospel message. Now, their doors are still open. People still show up. Things work. Projects still get done. But the main thing, the essential thing, calling lost sinners to salvation, calling people to faith in Jesus Christ has disappeared almost entirely, if not entirely, from the equation. Just a couple of weeks ago, I heard a story. I think it came from one of you. Forgive me. I remember the story. I just don't remember who told it to me. But one of you was telling me just within the last couple of weeks about how you were sharing the gospel or you were with someone who was sharing the gospel with an elderly woman and, and, and telling the story of salvation as we know and we celebrate it here today. And at the conclusion of the presentation, this elderly woman, her words were something to this effect. She said, you know, I've gone to church my entire life and nobody ever told me that story. Can you imagine your entire life in a church and never hearing the gospel? And, and what's true organizationally is equally true personally. Some of us have family. Some of us have friends. Some of us have people, maybe even who've discipled us, been pivotal in our own journey with Jesus Christ, who have wandered away from the faith. Walked away from the faith. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus, speaking through the Apostle John to the church at Ephesus, calls it leaving your first love. And the question before us, the reason I'm taking the time to spell this out this morning, is the question before us here in the book of Malachi today is how does that happen? Why does it happen? And, and most significantly, perhaps most practically, what can you do? What can I do? What can we do to guard ourselves against it happening to us? And the reason I'm asking all those questions and the reason I'm presenting that very real world, real life scenario to you is because I believe with all my heart that today's look at Malachi, those verses we just read, can help us with those questions. But before I show you how, I want to give you a quick reminder a reminder for those of you who were here last week and may have forgotten, an introduction for those of you who were not here and need to know, just in a nutshell, in a microcosm, what the book of Malachi, the man and the message, are all about. So here goes. If you want to know the scoop on Malachi, here it is. Malachi. He was a prophet. His name appropriately meant God's messenger, my messenger. He ministered in Jerusalem, in Israel, we're pegging it around the year 440 B.C. Now, the reason that's significant, some of you don't care for dates and times and chronology, but it matters here. Because that puts it, by ministering around 440 B.C., that put Malachi squarely in what Bible historians call the post-exilic era. Now, we've talked about in the Minor Prophets, and maybe you've heard otherwise if you've studied the Old Testament, that there was a time 
when the people of Israel were sent into exile. They sinned and sinned and sinned and sinned, and they couldn't get it right, and they wouldn't repent. And so God, we've talked about this in this series, sent the Babylonians in. They conquered Israel. They destroyed Jerusalem. They raised the temple, and they took everybody who survived back to Babylon as captives. That's Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, that crowd. And they spent 70 years in exile in Babylon. Well, when the 70 years were complete, just as God said it would happen, God brought his people back to Jerusalem. Thus, they are living in Jerusalem in the post-exilic era. And the reason that's significant is they'd been back by the time Malachi arrived on the scene for a while. In fact, they'd been back home. The temple had been, been rebuilt. Worship in the temple, according to the Old Testament law, had resumed. And they'd been at it long enough, this is the key, that they had moved from a place, the people of God had, of spiritual vibrancy, of spiritual energy, of, hey, it's so good to be back, worshiping freely once again. They'd moved from spiritual vibrancy to spiritual apathy, spiritual lethargy, which is why God appointed Malachi to deliver a series of messages intended to expose the people's wayward hearts and once again call them back to himself. And that takes us to this morning's prophetic message, the specific message God had for them, which was this, and this is the first of three things I want to show you in the text this morning. This particular message, the second and the longest prophetic message found in the book of Malachi, was intended to deal with, number one, the problem, everybody say the problem, the problem of corrupted worship. This is a message about the problem of corrupted worship. Imagine with me for a moment, if you will. That this week, word came down from the Lord, okay? I don't know how that would happen, but, but it's from the Lord, and we know it. Everybody knows it. It's not some wacky guy out there somewhere saying God told him. No, no, we know this is from the Lord. And he tells all believers on the planet, close your churches. Just close them. Bolt the door, board up the windows, sell your property, vacate the premises from urban megachurches to jungle huts. Close them all. Turn out the lights. The party's over. Wherever people meet in my name, don't meet there anymore. The reason I ask you to imagine such a ridiculous, such an unbelievable scenario is that's exactly, if you look closely with me at Malachi 1.10, that's exactly what God says he wants here, or that he wanted here. Malachi 1.10 says this. I'm going to jump right into the middle, and then I'll fill in some of the blank or blanks around it. He says, oh, he's speaking to the priests, that there were one among you who would shut the gates. He's talking about the temple. He's talking about the house of worship. There were one among you with the guts, with the courage to shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar anymore. Why? Because I'm not pleased with you says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept any more offerings from you. Why? Because of the problem of corrupted worship. You see, in Malachi's day, and I touched on this a moment ago, but let's unpack it a little further. In Malachi's day, people were still showing up for services. They were still coming to the temple, as the law instructed them to do, and they were coming with their sacrifices and offerings in hand. They were bringing the lambs and the rams and the goats and the grain and, and the money and all the things that, that the law said you're supposed to do. People are still coming to services. They're coming with offerings in hand, yet the one who, as we know so well, looks not at the outward appearance but examines the what? The God examines the heart well, he's examining the people's hearts, and here's what he sees, and here's what he knows. Go back to verse 6. 
He says, look, guys, a son honors his father, a servant his master. At least he should. So if I'm a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my respect? O priests who despise my name. Now the priests object. How have we despised your name? God answers by presenting defiled food upon my altar. You see, and and we've talked about this occasionally in the past, the crowning principle of Old Testament worship, and, and it's still the crowning principle of worship today, but it was clearly evident in the sacrifices and offerings. Really, the crowning principle of the Old Testament sacrificial worship system is that you bring God, when you come to worship, you bring God your first and your best. You bring him your first, and you bring him your best. Thus, if you're a shepherd, what you do is you go out and you scour your flocks, however many dozen or hundred or thousand you may have, and you find the best one. You find the best one-year-old male lamb. That's what God wanted. No spot, no blemish, no infirmity. Bring him your best as a sacrifice to the Lord. It meant if you're a farmer, it means that God gets his share before you get yours. It's called the principle of first fruits. You bring him an offering from the grain, and then you go home and eat the rest. Man, if you're a merchant, if you're a merchant, it means what you didn't do was pay all your bills, stuff all your Dave Ramsey cash-only envelopes telling every dollar where it's supposed to go, right? And then, then whatever's left over, if anything's left over, well, we, we bring, we'll bring that and drop it in the box on the back of the sanctuary. Well, no, no, no. You give to God first, and then you learn to live on the rest. Give God your first You give him your best. Not because one coin's worth more than another, because some grain tastes better, because one sheep was cuter than the rest of the flock. But because what you bring and the the spirit in which you bring it reflects how you really feel about the Lord, where he really fits in in the order of your affections, the place that he holds in your heart. Now, Malachi, brace yourselves, because in a couple of weeks, he's going to say a whole lot more about this, and he's going to get a whole lot more personal and pointed about it. But, but, but for now, look at how far they'd already slipped. Just quickly, look at verse 8. They're supposed to be bringing spotless, blemishless, one-year-old male lambs. And God says, but you present the blind for sacrifice. Is that not evil? When you present the lame and the sick, you present the one you probably, probably he's probably not going to bring a whole lot anyway, Right? He's not worth a whole lot. Well, you bring that one. Is that not evil? Why not offer it to the governor? Would he be pleased with you? In other words, if the king were coming to dinner, would you give him a bologna sandwich or would you give him something a little more? You give him something that shows you're a person of honor and I respect you and so I'm going to give you something good. Verse 13 says it again. You also say, he's saying to the priest, you come to worship, you come to the temple and you say, Maybe they actually said it. Maybe they're just thinking it. Of course, God knows the heart. My, how tiresome it is. What a drag. We got to do this again today. We got to come here again today. We're going to go through the motions again today. He says, You disdainfully sniff at it. This really isn't worth my time. There's an attitude, a spirit of pride being expressed there. It's just another Sunday, four songs and a sermon. I know what to expect. We'll get through it. Hopefully they don't go too long. Hopefully they don't run out of donuts. Hopefully somebody will do something to impress me today. It's going through the motions. That's corrupted worship. Verse 14, 
He says, curse be the swindler who has a male in his flock. He has the, the, the sheep he knows he should bring, and he vows that he's going to bring it to the Lord, but he sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord, parenthetically, instead. And the reason that's, that's wrong, God says, is because I'm a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. In other words, God's calling out the attitude that says, you know, it doesn't really much matter what I bring him. It really doesn't even matter if I bring him anything at all. After all, he knows my heart. And, and he's gracious and merciful, and he loves me. You know, I can't do anything to make him love me anymore. can't do anything to make him love me any less. And, and so we file it. We say, well, it doesn't really matter what I bring, if I bring anything, because God knows I mean well. And we, we file that. We label it grace, and we stick it in that file and go, see, God's good with that. He knows. But, but in this instance, that's not what God labels it at all. Grace and understanding, and, and it's all cool. No, God puts it in a file labeled corrupted worship. And here's why. Because the people could do better. And they knew it. And God knew it. Everybody knew it. They knew in their hearts, I could give him. I could do better. I could worship with a whole heart. I could put my prejudices and my complaints aside. But they weren't. Corrupted worship. And that takes us straight to the second thing that we need to see in the passage. As we bump out of chapter 1 and into the first three verses of chapter 2. The problem of corrupted worship then gave way, and this is what Malachi, this is why I told you back in chapter 1, verse 1, that word oracle means burden. That's why this message for him to bring was a burden, is because the problem of corrupted worship led to, secondly, the penalty for Israel's priests. There was a penalty. God was announcing on Israel's priests because of this problem. You know, one of the, one of the more memorable and, and frankly sobering statements that my prayer mentor, Daniel Henderson, says all the time, I've heard him say it a dozen or a hundred, I don't know how many times, and it's both an encouragement, but it's also a warning. When he tells those of us who are pastors, he says, you know, guys, whatever captures a pastor's attention tends to drive the agenda of the church, so be careful what captures your attention. So whatever captures a spiritual leader's attention tends to drive the agenda of the people that, that they oversee, that they serve. And he said, so be careful what you let get hold of your heart and what you allow to be first in your affections. And, and I share that with you because it's vividly illustrated here in what we're looking at in Malachi. Because what's happened? Well, this, this, this virus really of spiritual apathy that has afflicted and, and overtaken the priests that, that, that's leading to corrupted worship, it was, it was making its way through all of Israel actually due to what no longer captivated the hearts of the priests. And that was the glory of God. The reason they're in this mess is we don't know what had taken the place in their affections, first place in their affections, but we know it wasn't any longer God's glory. And that's why if you go back very carefully through what we looked at in chapter 1 and pay close attention to the rest of chapter 2, you see that, that Malachi, he's training all of his prophetic ammunition, all his fire on the priests, on the spiritual leaders. He's directing it all to them, and it's why he emphatically warns them that if they didn't look at verses 2 and 3, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 of your Bible, Malachi warns them, he says, if you do not listen, this is God speaking through Malachi, if you don't listen and don't take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, well, I'm going to send the curse upon you. I'm going to curse your blessings. Indeed, I've cursed them already because you're not taking it to heart. And behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring. In other words, this is going to have a generational impact. And I'm going to spread refuse on your faces. The refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. Yes, that means what some of you think it does. Here's what God says. He says, I'm so, so displeased with what I see happening here, 
with your irreverence and worship, with, with the way you're going about things. He said, God said, what I'm going to do is if you don't fix your priorities, I'm going to take the manure of those inferior sacrifices, those lambs you're bringing, I'm going to smear it on your faces. And then I'm going to send you and them and all the droppings left behind out to, outside the city, out to the burn pile where it belongs. Because that's what I think of what you're doing. It's pretty graphic, pretty severe. Why? Why would a loving God say something like that? I'm going to smear manure on your face, send you outside of town. Because as another one of my pastoral heroes, Al Toledo, says, like priests, like people. Like priests, like people. He's saying, listen, guys, if, if, if you continue in this way, if you continue to, to substitute other things in place of my glory, if you continue to show people inferior worship, and, and, and lives that don't match the message, it's going to infect everybody. It will filter down through the congregation. Because you see, a priest's job, we get technical, we can go read the passages in Leviticus and, and places like that that tell us all the ins and outs and technicalities of being a priest, but if you really want to boil it down to something at least I can hold on to and understand, the job of a priest in the Old Testament, and again, the principle stays the same even though the forms today are different, is simply to make much of God in his life and in his ministry. A priest's job, a spiritual leader's job, is to make much of God in, in their life and in their ministry. Why? Because like priests, like people. So that those that, that he shepherds, those he oversees, will look, and, and as Paul says, be an imitator of me as I'm an imitator of Christ. Learn from my example. I'm not perfect. Fail all the time, and I'll own it when I do. But follow my example as I seek to follow his. And what Malachi understood, because God had revealed it to him, was that failing to do that to make much of God in their lives and in their ministry would once again lead Israel, first of all, down a path to irrelevance and then ultimately to a path of destruction. Rather than making them a people who go back to chapter 1, verse 11, look at it in your Bible right now, chapter 1, verse 11, who, what they should be is a people who from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, say, the name of the Lord will be great among the nations and in every place they... They offer incense. In other words, every place the people of God gather in his name for worship and a grain offering, they'll offer offerings that are pure. Why? So that my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, that you'll make much of me in your lives, in your ministry. Because if you do it, they'll do it. And if you don't, they won't. It's just the way it works. It's a principle of leadership, period, but especially of spiritual leadership where the stakes are higher. The stakes are eternal. Now listen. I realize that many of you just sit here this morning, you don't hold the title of pastor or elder or deacon or Bible teacher or Sunday school. Okay, that's fine. But as a believer, if you know Jesus Christ this morning, by definition, you're an influencer. In fact, you're more than that. You're an ambassador. You're an ambassador for Jesus Christ. You're a missionary, right? There are people in your lives. You're a father, a mother, a brother, a sister, a husband, a wife, a classmate, a coworker, a neighbor, a friend, who, listen to me, if you will make much of Jesus Christ in your life, where he's put you, in the circumstances that he has placed you, you are going to light the way to the cross for somebody else. We didn't all get led to faith by Billy Graham, right? 
We aren't all led to faith by the, what we consider the, the superstars. Somebody just got involved in your life and they lit the way to the cross because they made much of Jesus in your company. And now you're here. You're saved. So I'm, th- I'm, I'm thinking, I'm saying that, that we may not have been, we may not be this morning in the position of Israel's priest, but we can learn from their error and we can learn from their penalty by beginning to take our role as influencers and ambassadors, as sent ones, by taking it to heart and adopting the third and final thing I want you to see this morning. Got the problem of corrupted worship. It led to a penalty on Israel's priests. You know what the good news is? There's one more P word this morning, and there's a, it is that there is a prescription. And the prescription in the final five verses of this passage is a prescription, the prescription that rekindles first love. The prescription that rekindles our first love. Grab your Bible and look in chapter 2. I want to zero in on verses 4 through 6. So God just gives this penalty. He announces to the priest, hey, time's up. We've got to deal with this. And again, now why? Well, God explains why. He says, I'm going to do this then or so that you will know that I have sent this commandment to you. Then you will know, verse 4, that I sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. I gave them my covenant, my promises to him as an object of reverence. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. Now, those three verses are very, very perplexing for two reasons. Very perplexing to me. And probably once I explain it to you as well. Number one, it talks about this covenant with Levi and what a great guy he was. Well, I don't know if you've read the Old Testament. I don't know if you've read the book of Genesis. Levi was a first-rate scoundrel. He's just, he just a rough dude. I mean, he may have had some good moments, but his bad ones get all the ink in the Bible. This description doesn't match what, what I know about him, what, what you can find about him in the scriptures. So that's the first thing that perplexes me about these verses. The second is this. There is no record that I can find anywhere in the Bible of a covenant with him. A covenant with Levi. I can find a covenant with Noah, Abraham, uh, Jacob, David, us. There's no covenant of Levi anywhere, which leads me to one of two conclusions or possibilities. One, Malachi got the message wrong. Or two, there's more here than meets the eye. I wonder if you can guess which way I went. There's more here than meets the eye. And it took some digging. And, and I learned a whole bunch of stuff this week. And, and I'm not sure that I can explain it as clearly as I'd like to, but I'm going to give it a try. Because the best guess, our best bet as to what this refers to, knowing this this beautiful covenant with Levi of righteousness and holiness and purity and peace that doesn't square with his character or anything else that we can find in his life as recorded in the scripture, our best bet is that what Malachi is referring to with this Levi covenant is an obscure story that's found in Numbers 25. Maybe you want to find your way there because I'm going to read from it in a moment. Numbers 25. And the story in Numbers 25 is about Israel, a man who ultimately became Israel's third high priest. He wasn't high priest at the time, but he was among the priests. He was a priest. And his name was Phineas. 
Phineas was the, the grandson of Aaron, the first high priest. Aaron's Moses' brother. Phineas is his grandson. And because he's the, the grandson of Aaron, Aaron, that also means he's a direct descendant or, or, of, of, of Levi. He is a member of the tribe of Levi. He is a Levitical priest. And because he belonged to the family of Aaron, he is one of the men called to the priestly ministry. We think that verses 4 through 6 reference a story from his life. And, and, the, and the reason, you say, well, then why didn't Malachi just mention him by name? Why didn't he say this covenant with Phineas and the story of Phineas? Well, the best guess is that Phineas is being upheld here, but, but he, we're called Levi because the way Phineas behaved in this story is exemplifying, is illustrative of the way the heart of every true priest of God ought to beat. There was something about this man that it wasn't just him. This is what a priest, a, a son of Levi should be all about in his life and in his ministry. Because in a story that is far too bizarre, um, somewhere between PG-13 and R-rated, and complex to retell here, and you're going to have to go. It's not going to be evident. You're going to have to go home and get a commentary and study this, because I'm not telling the story right now. But, but what I can tell you is this, is there was a day in the land of Israel when, a literal day, when their descent into idolatry and Baal worship and the mixing of it with the worship of the one true God had become so bad, so gross, so entwined worship with sexual immorality. And there was a particular moment in time and a particular event that took place, abhorrent in the sight of God. One commentator said it may have been the single greatest moment of apostasy anywhere in the Old Testament. I don't know if that's true, but it's in the top five. On the day, as this event was happening, at the doorway of the temple, the Bible tells us in Numbers 25 that Phineas alone, out of all Israel's spiritual leaders, there was one priest willing to do something about it. And his name was Phineas. And he acted immediately, and he acted decisively to stop the spread of sin. No one else would do it, but he did, and he stood up and he said, this is wrong, and, and I'm going to make it right. And as such, so great was his love for God, so great was his devotion to the glory of God. I'm just going to pick it up. The story that I'm referencing is told in verses 1 through 9. But I want you to focus on what came next in verse 10. Then, after Phineas did what no one else was willing to do, as a priest, as a spiritual leader, doing the right thing right now, the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel. For he was jealous with my jealousy among them. And so I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, now here's where we think, this is, this is very, very similar to what we just saw in Malachi. Therefore say, behold, I give him my covenant of peace. It shall be for him and his descendants after him, a covenant of perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. In other words, God saw Phineas's actions in Numbers 25. And in language we can understand, he looked at Phineas and he said, now that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm looking for. That's how the heart of a man or woman of God should beat. That even when everybody else says, it's, it's okay. When everybody else says, not me, Lord, he gets up and he does something about it now. The holiness of God. A jealousy for the glory of God. He said, now that's what I'm talking about. And coming back to Malachi chapter 2, verse 6. 
That's why God said, and I believe he's talking about Phineas, true instruction was in his mouth. Unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me. See, these are the words of the covenant in peace and uprightness and turned many back from sin. And two, because whenever you turn away from one thing, you turn to another, he turned them back to their first love. God in his glory. Let me ask you a question. You want God to say that about you? To look at your life and your passion, and yes, all your flaws and imperfections as well, but to look at your heart and say, now that's what I'm talking about. There's somebody who's, who's about me and my glory, who's willing to do the right thing right now, right away, for the glory of God and for the good of others. Do you want God to say that about you? Well, if so, then take the prescription. The prescription that renews and rekindles first love. And that prescription comes down to one word, three letters, awe. A-W-E. The prescription that rekindles first love is awe. The awe of the glory of God. Malachi says so in verse 5. Look at it. My covenant with him, Phineas, and again, illustrative of, of, of what any true priest of Levi, any true man or woman of God ought to be all about. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. I gave them to him as an object of reverence, so he revered me, and he stood in, what does it say in the Bible? In awe of my name. He stood in awe of my name, and it changed everything. That's what propelled Phineas to defend God's glory. It's what the priests and therefore the people in Malachi's day were missing. And it's what you and I must pursue in this day, in this season. We can, we can analyze the culture for the rest of our lives. Did you see this story? Did you follow that? Did you read that post? And we can do it again and again and again and again. It has nothing to do with the awe of the glory of God. We need to get busy about the glory of God. We need to focus on being in awe of our God. Because when you turn your eyes, I think there's a song on Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. How are you doing in terms of awe this morning? Whether you need to rekindle your love or go deeper with Jesus, we must consciously, continually seek to stand in awe of his great name. So here's your homework. Yes, homework. I don't give you homework often. I'm giving you homework this week. I'm giving you a challenge, and I'm going to do it too. Get ready. You're going to have to jot this down quickly. I'm going to not invite you. I'm going to challenge you for each of the next five days to read a particular passage of Scripture. I'm going to tell you what they are. Read one a day, okay? We'll throw them up on the screen right now. You can jot them down. Psalm 103, Isaiah 40, John 10, 1 through 18, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, Colossians 1, 13 through 23. Five passages. I know there's seven days till next Sunday, but if you're like me, you're going to miss one probably, right? But I'm going to give you time. Each of the next five days, read one of those passages. The next day, read the next one. Now, you, you can't do this in the car on the way to work, okay? You can't do this with your phone in your hand, unless that's where your Bible is. Read it slowly, thoughtfully, repeatedly, and then ask yourself three questions. You need to write this down as well. 
And I encourage you to write down these answers so that you'll remember them. But they are as follows. Number one, what does this passage say God is like? What does it reveal to me about his traits and his characteristics and his, we call them his attributes? What does this say God is like? And just whether it's one thing or it's a dozen, just write it down. It says he's this and this and this and this and this. But believe me, the first one, Psalm 103, it's going to keep you busy, okay? What does it say God is like? Question number two. What does it say God has done? Go from character to actions. What does it say he has done? And just write out whatever you see in that passage each day. And then ask yourself this question, and you, can't, you won't be finished until you ask this question. Here it is. Why would he do that for me? Why would a God who is so incredible, who has done so much, do these things for me? See, well, it's kind of self-centered, isn't it? No, that's why he did them. <laughs> the Bible said he did them for us. And the reason I want us to do that assignment, that homework this week, is because I really believe that if you, that if I, that if we take that exercise, that homework seriously at all, I think you're going to be blown away by what you see, by how it impacts your heart and life. I believe your awe quotient will begin to rise. So for the love of God, give it a try. Give it a try. Because the big idea of today's message, it's very, very simple. The more you stand in awe of Jesus, the greater your love for him will grow. I just want to love Jesus more. I just want to know Jesus more. Spend some time. Not sitting, not sprinting, not wandering. Standing in awe of who he is. And the more you stand in awe of Jesus, the greater your love for him will grow. That's just the way the Christian life works. It's just the way that life in Christ happens. And it's exactly how our lives, priest and people alike, are meant to be lived. Let's stand together as we close in prayer. Father, as we physically, literally stand before you at the end of this hour, this hour and whatever together. Father, I believe that there are many of us here today who, like me, Father, and I'll be the first to say my awe quotient needs to grow. Father, I need to spend more time standing, concentrating in awe of you. Father, not just repeating phrases I've heard in the past, not just quoting Bible verses, but to looking to, to Jesus, fixing my eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Father, I, I, I'm willing to guess there's a handful of us here this morning who could say the same. And that even if we don't need to, we're doing well, but, but we want to. We want to know you more. We want to love you more. We want to make much of you in our lives and in our serving. Partly because we would love to hear you look at us and say, now that's what I'm talking about. But even more than that, because Jesus is a great king. He is worthy everywhere 
that men and women and children gather in his name for sacrifices of pure and holy praise to be offered up. He is worthy of our first and our best always. Father, help us. Father, whether it's this homework assignment or something else, but to say, yes, Jesus is worthy this week. However busy I am, however distracted I feel, Jesus is worthy of my time. And Father, surprise us with your goodness. Surprise us with your generosity. Blow us away with the recognition, whether for the first time or all over again, of just how glorious your Son truly is is. Father, as always, we ask that you take the things of truth that have been spoken here this morning, that you would seal them up, bind them in our hearts, and make them unforgettable. And Father, take everything else and just let it slip away so that we leave looking to savoring, treasuring Jesus only and above all else. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.